Welcome to another issue of Essential Environmental. I'm your host, uh, Terry Montoya, where I uh, distill new regulations, new trends, new environmental issues uh, for the benefit of the regulated community. And today we're going to be talking about California State Water Resources Control Board's September 7th uh, regulation to test for microplastics in drinking water. Um, it's, a, it's, it's novel regulation in the state, but also uh, California is really the first government in the world uh, seeking to establish health-based guidelines for acceptable levels of microplastics in drinking water. Uh, this is going to have um, significant effect on um, a lot of you in the regulated community. And we are blessed to go through with this issue with our guest, John Roer, the principal geologist at Rue, R-O-U-X, Environmental, uh, a firm that provides uh, full and complete environmental remediation services, expert services, uh, covering the gamut of environmental issues, uh, and they work worldwide. They've got a great, uh, interesting history. They started in, uh, in New York. Um, last year, you guys celebrated your 40th uh, anniversary. That's right. And I'm gonna get, we're going to start off with giving John an opportunity to introduce himself uh, and his background. Um, I do want to note, uh, I scoured your resume, which we'll provide a link to uh, on the website. And I see, I didn't know this, I see you, um, you do a lot of uh, water rights in your water rights course guest lecturer at California State University, San Bernardino. Um, I don't know if I ever told you, but I'm counsel for the, uh, the water master, the Beaumont Cherry Groundwater uh, Basin. So I'll we'll have, we'll have to follow up on that. And you went to the University of Arizona where I paid a lot of money to, and <laughs> I'm still, um, still shocked over their uh, quick exit from the NCAA, but Big fan of Sean Miller, so fingers crossed as to Xavier. So, John, we're going to go deep into this topic with your expertise. First of all, let's start off. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself and your, your background to the audience, and we'll get going. Sure. Thank you, and thank you for this opportunity. Um, my mom used to say that I used to play in the water too much. I'd come home muddy, um, and I think I always had a calling to end up either doing water for a living, but then also whether it's sailing, scuba diving, playing ice hockey, kind of just have this draw. Um, so I'm a bit of a geek and got lucky that I was able to get an undergraduate degree in geology out east at university at Lehigh University um, in Pennsylvania. And then, like you mentioned, went to University of Arizona to kind of hone those skills uh, to learn about hydrogeology and then ended up here in California and have been loving life and lucky. Um, I joke, though, there's always kind of this next methyl ethyl death on the horizon. Uh, we're seeing PFAS in particular uh, with the US EPA uh, last week or two weeks ago issuing very low draft part per trillion levels. Um, microplastics might or might not be the next iteration of that. Um, certainly for groundwater, I hope it's not. And I don't think as a groundwater scientist it will be. But microplastics will be very important um, from an environmental perspective. But right now, California is kind of, like you said, breaking open the door and setting some standards. 
But for me, I've been lucky enough to work on a bunch of the emerging contaminants over time. And we at Rue are mainly being a hydrogeology-focused firm. Been tracking this for six or seven years now since we first kind of saw the science evolving and saw what the water board was going to do. Thank you. Thank you for that great. Uh, I'm sure you're very modest. And uh, again, Thank I will you. encourage people to go through, go check in on our on our website and um, really take the time to um, scour John's uh, resume. So a logical place to start is um, with a definition of, you know, what are microplastics? Sure. Microplastics compared to some of the other let's call it methyl ethyl death compounds we joke about um, are, are, are kind of simpler to understand in that they're the physical breakdown of primary plastics. So plastics are all around us. Um, the simplest analogy is a plastic bag that if the plastic bag gets left outside in the sun or in the rain or gets run over by things or gets in a water body, it breaks up, it tears apart into smaller and smaller pieces. And the state of California defined microplastics as being between five millimeters down to one micrometer or micron. Um, so very, very small. So five millimeters you can see, and then one micron can't really see. Maybe if there were a lot of particles, it would look like a dust. Um, and that definition is what's guiding at least the California um, efforts. There are things that are smaller than microplastics called nanoplastics that are less than that one micron size. So generally, they're just small little pieces of, of, of plastic that have weathered or degraded from other larger plastics. Yeah, and you've mentioned um, uh, you've mentioned the um, kind of you know ubiquity of of microplastics, and a lot has been written on that, um, including you know I mentioned it in an article that I wrote for for our clients on you know what's coming down the pike in terms of California's. Um, you know, initial starts at regulating microplastics, but um, the information that's out there as to its, um, you know, omnipresent status is, is really surprising and shocking. I don't know if people really, uh, really know. So why don't we, why don't we talk a little bit about that? Sure. Absolutely. That um, for better, or for worse. And I think some people back a century ago would say plastics were for the better, um, they've become just a part of everyday life. I mean, on me, I'm wearing something that's got plastic fibers in it. There's plastic all on my background. Um, I opened a bag of chips earlier. I'm pretty sure I ate some microplastics after I did that. That plastics are an integrated part of our human existence today in terms of being part of the primary chain of commerce and being manufactured. Many things are made of plastics, obviously. But then we put our food in plastics. We put water into bottles that are plastic. Um and then a lot of our materials in our homes and businesses have plastic integrated in them. And so plastics, unfortunately, are kind of inescapable in today's modern society. And a lot of just like, again, some of these chemicals, when they were first originated, they were thought to make um, our living, our life, our um, existence better. And in retrospect, certainly plastics do do that in many ways. But we have knowledge now that we didn't have a century ago, a decade ago about the fact that they may be um, certainly a risk from an ecological perspective to some of the animals out there, uh, fish and other things, but then also to us as humans, that they're ubiquitous, like you said, and they're they're kind of everywhere. In every study, they've, they've been located as high as the Himalayas and as low as the uh, Marianas Trench. 
as far as we can probe <laughs> to the right. depths we can probe the Marianas Trench. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the issue uh, of size um, and how small they get. Mm -hmm. The they pose quite a challenge because they get so small that they become airborne, and that is a form of ingestion, just breathing. That's right. And that's where, unfortunately, for better or for worse, and I appreciate living in California, um, some of the state's environmental approaches are pretty, um, let's call it progressive. And definitely here in California, the drinking water is kind of one of the primary things that is being pushed, but there are consumer product um, efforts underway right now that relate to plastics. But we don't fully understand every exposure pathway for plastics, like you alluded to. Um, the normal human, based on some studies, is is ingesting more plastics through food packaging and through what we breathe in the air, way more than what's in tap water, um, let alone groundwater, which is what I specialize in. But that's kind of where, in some ways, I'm not sure that we haven't put the cart in front of the horse by our legislature here in California, kind of getting us onto this road. Um, certainly, it's something that needs to be studied, and absolutely um, good science needs to be used. But heading down a path to regulating microplastics for drinking water when there are all these other exposure pathways. I'm not sure that's the best use of time and money if we all are breathing them um, constantly because of other things uh, that are going out there. And it might be easier to knock out some of those other pathways before you deal with drinking water. Well, yeah, you, you raised the cart before the horse and we're going to get to that. Mm -hmm. um, this is another example of like, you know, like PFAS, emerging mm -hmm. chemicals of, uh, you know, California taking the leading role in being aggressive and starting the regulation process, right. but starting the regulation process before um, science and technology, water treatment technology, identification of, of the contaminants technology uh, is there, is established, you know, so it has to catch up. But, um, We'll get we'll we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. um, the <clears throat> the regulation, the Senate bill, California Senate bill is going to be testing source waters that are going to go through the wastewater treatment facility. That's yeah, that's the initial uh, focus. I wonder if you could um, talk about what are some of the you know recycling challenges. Uh, posed by microplastics? Sure. Um, and just for clarification, at the moment, they are going to get to the wastewaters, but at the moment, it's the source waters for the drinking water. That's kind of on the on the top of the, top of the list right now for division drinking water um, advancing this. But but yeah, unfortunately, micro, again, plastics are everywhere, and some people think of the simplest things being recycling a plastic bottle. But in terms of the chain of commerce and how that happens, um, A, there are limitations at a local level. Um, if I put something in my blue recycle bin, there's somebody that later has to, that's, that's taken somewhere that's a recycling facility. But still, I don't know, maybe, maybe I inadvertently put something that's not plastic in there that needs to be recycled. There has to be separation of the recycling streams. And then the United States generally has very little to no actual recycling capabilities. There is some. A very nice plan up in Vernon, but overall, um, a lot of our recycling is done overseas, and a lot of those countries have decided they, for many reasons, don't want to be part of that at the moment. 
And so in terms of recycling, although there was a big push through the 80s and 90s towards this, um, it's difficult to know if I put something in my recycling bin, how, where will it go? Will it be recycled? And what's the cost of that? So um, whether it's plastic bags, whether it's the easy things like, um, let's call it uh, water bottles, soda bottles, um, the life cycle of recycling is very challenging. And people are trying to basically recognize that and just get rid of um, single-use plastics. A lot of initiatives across the U.S. are trying to do that. That You can't necessarily fix the recycling problem, but you can fix, hey, let's stop using single-use plastics that have to be recycled. Microplastics in, uh, in groundwater, uh, are those um, the type of um, contaminant that will dissolve over time? Um, that's a good question. That Once you're in the ground, there's, a, there's not a lot of abrasion. There's not a lot of sun exposure. That microplastics in the ground, once they've gotten into the ground, um, aren't going to, let's say, transform too much. Um, and overall, the transformation usually happens before you get into the groundwater. And fortunately, groundwater, I think, um, based on the studies I've seen and studies others have cited, is going to be one of the lowest, uh, let's call it frequency of detections we're going to have for microplastics in water. Surface water bodies obviously have a lot more, and the drinking water that's sourced from surface water is a different issue. But for groundwater, it's definitely there. There are definitely microplastics there, unfortunately, but lower counts, lower numbers, and there's not a lot of transformation happening in the ground. So let's talk about um, what are the uh ecological human health effects posed by by microplastics that are driving this regulation? Sure. Um, so right now, unfortunately, I just reread a study this morning that was from UC Sacramento that was done for our state legislature, kind of getting an update on where things are on the health front with that. And the World Health Organization has done a lot of work. And then there's thousands of researchers kind of studying everything. Overall, the short answer is we don't know what the human health effects are at the moment. Um, there are studies that suggest there can be developmental re reproduction um, effects, but it's not like benzene that kind of black and white early on, it was like, oh, this is a carcinogen. Um, so people are working on that. And, and, and the hard part is every microplastic is different. It comes from different chemistry, meaning uh, a, recycle, a water bottle will be different chemistry than, um, let's say, a, pl a plastic bag as they degrade into plastics. And then what we're learning is there may be, um, let's call it differences in the health effects based on the, the shape of the plastic. So kind of like asbestos is long lenticular um, pieces. Does a, does a human body react differently to a sphere of the same plastic than it does a, uh, let's call it fiber? Um, so unfortunately, there's a lot, of, a lot of work to still be done on the human health effects. But from an ecological perspective, there's a lot more study that's been done. It's a lot easier to do studies on, um, let's call it uh, fish or small invertebrates than it is to do on humans, obviously. And people are seeing these effects in uh, ecological organisms. And certainly humans have microplastics in our bodies and our blood. Same for a lot of the animals we eat and the same for animals we don't eat. They're in the food chain. Um, so it's definitely an issue, but there's no black and white, let's call it decision yet. But indications are it may be an issue for humans and definitely from an ecological toxicity perspective for certain species so far that have been studied. It's a lot like the, um, the uh, health effect studies 
that have um, considered the effects of the many thousands of PFAS products, mm-hmm. um, human exposure uh, effects. And, you know, it's, it's a challenge when, when you're talking about thousands and thousands of discrete chemicals and isolating one of those or a handful of those and tying them to, um, you know, the endocrine system, uh, endocrine system type uh, conditions that affect the body because it's hard to draw a clear line, a a clear causation line. You know, you ingest this and then you ended up with, with a tumor. It's pretty similar in, in, in the microplastics realm at this particular time, isn't it? Agreed. That's that's well said. That PFOS, there are thousands of them, um, and we only can quantify at the point at this point, kind of less than fifty. For microplastics, take that and think about. We've got multiple dimensions on 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 the microplastics. What are they made of? What's their shape? What's their color? Do they um, carry any other contaminants with them? That yeah, there's such a wide variety that trying to uh, build a good health effects database. There's so many different variables that come into it. You got to start small and simple and then build out from there. And that's what a lot of good scientists are working on right now. It's just, there's a lot to be done. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of studies and you're, and you're right. A lot of the studies are from um, other nations on, on PFAS and and Mm -hmm. microplastics. Um, And, you know, they, it's problematic to ingest all of those, but Tying it to something specific is is still a challenge, but that may not that may not help the regulated community uh, avoid litigation. But we're we're getting ahead of ourselves. So let's turn to the issue of all right. So what is California now going to do to evaluate potential impacts, microplastic impacts? Sure. So the most clear thing is what again you mentioned the Senate bill a few years ago that the State Water Resource Control Board through the Division of Drinking Water was tasked with developing a, a definition of microplastics. We got that. Then they were tasked with developing an analytical method for uh, microplastics and drinking water. They did that last, uh, I think you were alluding to September of last year. Um, there are quarterly update calls um, that I, I and a bunch of other people participate in that it seems like, at least on the last quarterly call, three labs had put in their um, applications to be certified for, for analysis. But the first drinking water samples that are supposed to be taken, that are going to be raw water samples, not the finished water, are supposed to be in the third quarter of 2024, so in a few months. Um, but the lab analysis, as far as I'm aware, and there's a next quarterly call in a few weeks, um, there haven't been any labs that have been approved yet by the state. So there's this kind of narrowing window between, let's call it the third quarter of 2020, sorry, I said 2024, I meant 2023, third quarter of 2023 and finalization lab methods. But for two years after third quarter of 2023, they're supposed to be monitoring of raw water. So the water sources for about 30 purveyors, 30 water providers in the state. And there's going to be kind of a year pause or recalibration in two years where it's going to be like the federal UCMR, which is the unregulated contaminant monitoring rule, where division of drinking water will require, it's not clear if it's all water purveyors or those above a certain size in the state to look for microplastics, both in their raw water and their finished water. So that's going to be um, coming up in 2028, 2029 is when that kind of 
uh, window will be. So maybe by 2030, we have a sense, at least here in California, for drinking water. Um, what does it look like? What um, I read about this term, uh, Cal EPA green chemistry yes. evaluation. What, what is that? So in California, we've also got other entities, other people that are looking at that. And um, Cal EPA in particular has tried to follow some European models where you look at the products and as a potential source of the materials, um, can we as a state, can they as a state, try to encourage manufacturers to go away from certain things that maybe are harmful? And they've had at least two hearings, I think, on whether microplastics are or not something they want to really look at. Um, so for PFAS, for instance, they talked to the carpet manufacturers and said, hey, you're using certain PFAS as your um, stain guards. Should we think about different products to do that? For microplastics, they're not that far along yet, but they're looking at it. And then the other thing that may happen in California, and I'm not saying this because I know, but I think it would be logical, with ecotoxicology being further along for microplastics than, let's say, human health effects, it may be that we see this um, these methods for drinking water jump over to be more looking at surface water. And might there be um, waste discharge requirements? Might there be um, discharge limits for stormwater, for, for treated uh, effluents? that may come about first based on ecological effects to the receiving, the animals in the receiving water bodies. Um, and that is where the next few years, I'm not quite sure whether the first thing that really maybe let's call it be firmly entrenched in terms of knowing more is going to be drinking water. Or are we about to take a side side turn into the surface water realm? I'm not sure. It's the tip of the spear. Yes. The tip of the spear and uh, it could take us to, um, yeah, waste discharge requirements. It could take us to numeric limits. Yep. It could take us to total maximum daily loads. It could be in the future a total maximum daily load for uh, microplastics, you know, constituents. Well, that's a good point because that's what happened for stormwater for trash. There was a, several municipalities and areas had trash TMDLs, but 90% of that was really focusing on plastic bags. Um, but yeah, we scale that down to we're looking at microparticles. It'd be an easy thing, I think, from a regulatory perspective to to focus on, right? It's kind of quantifiable. You know where you've already been there with trash TMDLs. Just call it a different thing. Is this driving uh, other states to take um, a similar look at uh, at their source waters for uh, you know potable potable water source waters and undertake testing? Yeah, it seems a few are. I gave a presentation at the National Groundwater Association um, back in December and talked about this, that at least New Jersey almost has an apples to apples legislation similar to what California did several years ago. Um, Minnesota is approaching it differently, that they, they, they say it might be a problem, but they're giving a lot of money to their universities and research uh, institutions. And their environmental agency um, is more in a hey, let's study this mode, then, uh, hey, let's regulate this mode at the moment. Um, so, yes, other states are, let's say, proceeding, but it feels like most states are going to wait and see what happens with California, um, meaning, like we talked about, I'm not sure if it'll be 2029, 2030, that you have a real good data set. Um, but at least in the next two years, hopefully there'll be some data set from those 30 water purveyors 
that I think a couple other states are really waiting on the sidelines to see, do the data show there's substantial exposure through drinking water? And do they need to do anything about it based on what California sees? Um, but the other thing I'd say, though, is we've got these parallel tracks. We talked about air probably being the biggest route of exposure or food packaging. That all may pick up steam on different fronts. And I'm not sure if um, the U.S. I know the U.S. EPA is looking at some aspects of this. Um, and I don't know if maybe some of the federal efforts will overtake um, what some states may be on time wise. California is pretty aggressive on this. Um, I don't think the EPA is at that same at that same level i think they may they may also they're considering this of course but they may also have the benefit of waiting to see what uh, what happens with california's data agreed and, and and one thing i do want to make sure i i mentioned though is the us epa did actually make some headway on plastics in general um, in the oceans. They had a group of people that were working on this and one of the administrators, this was one of the things that was in his big priority list to basically help look at um, international waters and U.S. coastal waters and look at plastics, um, not necessarily microplastics, but obviously microplastics comes with it. So the federal government has done some things, but not as much, let's call it terrestrial side. All right. So California is going to be focusing on source waters for potable water. But on an analysis level, we talked about the size, the minute size of, of microplastic constituents, elements. What's the challenge there? How, how easy is it to I, even identify microplastics in source waters? That's, that's a good question. And that's, yeah, part of the, part of the challenge here is the methods that are being um, proposed for the drinking water, let's say right now, can only see down to 20 micron, where the bottom limit of, of our, uh, what's it, what are we going to call it, microplastics definition is one micron. So the technology can't see the smallest particles yet reliably. But at a bigger picture, let's say you get a water sample out of a river that's got chemicals in it, but it's also got sediment in it that has nothing to do with plastics. It's got dirt. It's got um, other material in it. So the first challenge is you take that sample to a lab. They have to figure out which particles are plastic, which particles are other. Um, so there's there's a couple steps involved. And actually taking the samples is, is its own challenge. Um, you can't use plastic uh, containers, obviously, uh, which is kind of a staple of a lot of the, yeah, a lot of the analytic lights and you've got to wear certain clothes and all those things. But generally, the labs, uh, we're lucky. The United States is really good at these things and we can make technological advances really quickly. A lot are moving forward, but basically they're fancy microscopes that look at very small particles, but they have to be kind of smart microscopes to be able to distinguish which are microplastics or not. And or there's a human element that you kind of break a slide that you put down beneath one of these high-end microscopes and you break it into quadrants and you count the quadrant, then you scale it up to the whole slide. But either way, the techniques are there to begin the process, but it's not very automated yet. Um, like some labs can run samples for volatile analysis where they just stick, hey, here are the samples. You stick them on a line and they go through the machine real quick and you can do a certain amount per hour. The technology is still really evolving. Um, so it's complicated and expensive. Um, but the labs, I have a feeling, are going to catch up just like they did for PFAS. Yeah, the labs are, are certainly still trying to catch up right. and, and improve the technology. Um as you mentioned, we're, we're lucky to have 
um, the technology and the aggressiveness to um, to come up to speed. But in the in the technological realm of of, of sampling, um, you know, what do you foresee future technology focusing on or or altering its methods to focus on? Right. So for the sampling, um, compared to how you would take a normal water sample, you have to be pretty worried about cross-contamination. Like we talked about, there's microplastics in the air, it's in our clothing. So a closed loop system would be ideal. And there's one that's been developed that's going to be tried in the pilot program that's ongoing with the division of drinking water that might be applied to the 30 purveyors that have to be in the first phase of sampling. And that's basically if it's just a very small, specific sieve system. You pay attention to how much water do you put through across this sieve. Then you take the sieve and you send it to the lab where it's removed the microplastics above whatever size you're looking for. In this case, it, it, it should be one to one. It should be able to let things through that are smaller than one micron and catch things that are bigger than one micron. But you may need multiple filters along the way because if you're sampling a muddy river, um, yeah, you clog that clog that sieve up really quick. And we presently, we presently have the technology, the sieve technology, to get down to the smaller micron sizes. We can, yeah. I got one right over my shoulder. It's it's actually, I mean, I use the word sieve, but it's a filter. But the sieve is what most people think of. That it's a very fine filter, um, and it's in a stainless steel housing that's got no plastic in it, for instance. Um, and the other method is kind of more an open-air method with sieves. Um, so the technology is there. It's just going to be kind of tricky and take time for water operators to learn how to do it. But at the same time, if you think about how do you sample for microplastics in air, well, you're going to have to have um, different approaches and different ways to catch the, catch the samples because you need a certain mass to be able to analyze. And kind of if you only have a few microplastics, it's hard to, hard to get there. So – no, uh, no consideration. Uh, well, in the air realm, because that is a challenge when those uh, particles are so minute that yeah. they um, they can become airborne. <clears throat> in that realm, is there any consideration of indoor uh, outdoor sampling testing at this point? I'm gonna be honest. I haven't seen it yet. I know it's there because people have written studies about, hey, here's what the exposure is in indoor and outdoor air. That's just kind of with me being a geologist, a little outside my realm, but I, I know I'm sure people are working on it. So is there um, pressure at this point to um, identify microplastics um, in California, identify them as um, airborne contaminants, waterborne contaminants, contaminants in, in products? I'm thinking of in particular uh, Proposition 65, which sure. leads to, um, you know, has led to considerable litigation on the consumer warning aspects of of contaminants. Now you have you know, California identifying microplastics as something subject to regulation. Mm -hmm. You know, the State Water Resources Control Board, when it came out, with this Senate bill saying, well, we're just testing. It's just an initial testing. But, um, you know, they're invoking the regulatory authority. Right. So that can lead to, um, you know, uh, attorneys and groups saying, well, um, 
if microplastics are identified as a subject to regulation, should they be on a warning label, a Proposition 65 warning label? What are you hearing about that, if anything? Well, at, at the moment, again, um, on the human health effect side, just the science isn't there yet. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, but soon could be a relative term, um, meaning no sooner than three to five years, I don't think, based on the rate of the studies. But the microplastic studies are going up exponentially. So from a um, having a firm toxicology basis to go with a Prop 65, let's call it warning um, requirement, I think we're ways off. Um, for drinking water, there's a lower bar, let's call it, that we have notification levels, we have response levels that aren't regulations, they're just guidance. And it doesn't take as much to get there in terms of um, being able to know there may be a health effect from, let's call it, contaminant X, Y, or Z. For air, I've definitely seen less. Um, and I don't know that I've heard anything beyond Cal EPA thinking about it on the consumer product side. Um, whether there's any consideration to, uh, let's call it statewide California Air Resource Board or local, whether it's Bay Area, AQMD, APCDs, or, or Southern California AQMD being there yet, because I don't think the technology is there to kind of have a reliable sampling method um, that's defensible like what, to the state board's credit, they knew that if they're going to go collect the data, it's got to be defensible. You got to have a lab method that's approved. And that's where drinking water and water is kind of, let's call it three steps ahead of anything else. Going, going back to um, the testing technology mm -hmm. and the improvements of such, mm -hmm. uh, I know, well, there's, it's no secret that, that artificial intelligence is creeping its way through the business community, through the social, uh, social networking community, um, and in particular, at, at our firm, we have so many artificial intelligence uh, products. Um, you know, it's it's really astonishing, and as well as being helpful. But um, where where do you see uh, AI playing a role in terms of improving the kind of you know machine like, um, sieve like, physical filtration like uh, methods of uh, water sampling? I think it's going to be huge for microplastics because there's a lot of judgment calls to be made um, that right now kind of, let's call it the industry is at the level that you can count how many of the said particles there are. You can weigh them. You can say there are so many per liter, meaning a count per liter or weight per liter. But generally, the microplastic problem, like we talked about, may depend on the shape of the particle. Um, is, it, is it angular? Is it round? And doing that by eyeball is pretty hard. Um, and what we've, meaning not me as an individual, but what the field is doing is, is basically building libraries to teach the instruments, hey, if we see a spectra of X that's similar to something else somebody saw that a human ID'd that and said that is a certain type of plastic, that I think the potential is huge for that to advance this field, not just uh, microplastics, but all lab work. Um, but we're still a few years away in that for the microplastics, especially, they're still building the libraries that tell the machines if they identify something that's got a certain spectra, it equals this. Okay, you got to build those libraries before you can, let's call it sick AI or sick machine learning tools on it. 
So we're still a few years away from it, but definitely this this particular issue and the analysis of the um, let's call it samples. Yeah, it's 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 almost a no brainer. That would be where artificial intelligence could help. In the term in terms of measuring and quantitative analysis. Exactly. Interesting. Well, let's talk about the future. Yeah. Future in terms of um, litigation, future in terms of what type of um, products, industries um, are concerned, should be concerned about this, um, this trend. I mean, California is starting to, to test for it. It's, it's, it's going to lead to, it's going to lead to litigation. Um, I think it's also going to lead to, you know, numeric limits and all of that further on down the road, as we talked about TMDLs. Mm -hmm. Um, but right now, um, you know, who are you talking to about, um, being concerned about what, what California is doing? So there's kind of two ends of the spectrum at the moment. Um, the obvious people that may have challenges ahead of them are the people being asked to look for the microplastics in a product they provide, meaning water purveyors. Um, water purveyors are obviously going to be um, first and foremost, at least in the current California regulatory structure. But then at the other end of the spectrum are the people that make the plastics. You may be able to argue that, hey, a particular plastic came from a plastic bag or it came from a bottle or it came from something else. But everybody knows where the original plastic is coming from. And it turns out globally, most of the plastic put into the world is coming from all of maybe 30 or 50 types of entities. So what I've heard is kind of going back to whether it's the PFAS model recently or the um, old school MTB model on product liability, that although the MTB came from gas station XYZ, got in the ground, that there was a there, there there's a pass through liability. And again, I mean, you're you know a lot better than I do about the legal side of this. But I think the two ends of the spectrum are are, are the people who are going to be subject to the direct regulation, but then the people that are how this gets into the chain of commerce way up at the high end of the food chain, let's call it. Or manufacturing chain. And then everybody in between. There's some industries that are going to be a lot more um, simple or low-hanging fruit. Let's say um, you're somebody who's making plastic pipe and you use little plastic nurdles to make the pipe and form it. Well, that's kind of already regulated in California on a stormwater basis. So there's some obvious places that, um, let's say, either plaintiffs groups, uh, clean water action groups, air groups, I don't know who it might be, but as the regs begin to develop, there'll be some obvious places to look first and foremost. But as we saw with PFAS, I mean, there, were, there was litigation against Burger King, McDonald's for food packaging, um, maybe some of the pizza companies that they were using the PFAS to treat their um, wrappers. And so kind of the mind can wander in lots of ways, but I think the two end members are direct regulated and producers. And then in between there's greater sensitivities depending on what a particular, let's call it commercial business or manufacturer works with. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the PFAS model is, is a good example. I mean, um, PFAS litigation, class action type litigation, which is ongoing now against um, the manufacturers of uh, firefighting foam, 
of certain kinds of wrapping products um, that predated PFAS, you know, regulatory limits that predated mm-hmm. a lot of um, uh, studies, studies um, which still have not been developed, in my opinion, studies that, that directly tie the PFAS components in, for instance, the firefighting foam to a discrete uh, health effect, negative health effect, mm-hmm. negative conditions, cancer, tumor, whatnot. But um, on a class action level, um, that can continue. That can go the, the low-hanging fruit, the manufacturers. Here in this kind of instance, you know, we, we, we talked about this before previously. There's such a per- – it's it's so prevalent um, to use plastic piping in the water right. piping system. And I think, um, you know, those are the types of industries right now that, that should be concerned. It, it's kind of – you know, I read a lot of the, the critiques when um, California was uh, undertaking public hearings on this particular Senate bill. And um, well-founded critiques in terms of uh, water purveyor systems saying, you know, you're, you're going to force me to test. Uh, testing is a challenge. Um, the technology of testing is is a challenge. You're gonna you're gonna force me to test uh, when there's no particular regulatory limits mm-hmm. that would apply, but my testing is going to be a matter of public record. Right. And if there's a hit, if my testing results that yes, you you have identified this particular uh, microplastic component in, in in your source waters, then then they could become a target. They can become a target for litigation just based on that. Right. Um, as well as having to deal with, um, you know, at, at public hearings, uh, public outcry and, and, and concern, which is legitimate. But it's like you said, it, it puts them in a position of dealing with the cart before the horse. We're not, you know, we're waiting for the regulation to tell us what to do and the science to tell us how to uh discreetly test and uh, sample and treat these components. But now we're, you know, now we're, now we're being labeled as, you know, contaminators. Yeah, no, it's tricky. And, and I know a bunch of the state water resource control board people who are just doing the best they can. This was kind of pushed towards them by the legislature. Um, and definitely these are good scientists that are just doing everything they can to help with the messaging also. But yeah, there's a fairness consideration here if, if you're one of the 30 purveyors that get that order. Yeah, so future-wise, litigation-wise, I think product liability is, you know, product liability, class action type cases um, would be the first wave. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, in terms of... Um, what uh, you know, you would have you would have clients. I would have clients that some sometime down the line would have to deal with, uh, you know, waste discharge requirements tied to particular microplastic components, uh, NPDES permit requirements, Air emissions possibly, emissions possibly. Yeah, that's um, that's in the to be determined column. Right, years years down the road, I think, but. Uh, it all depends how 
what you consider to be near term. But um, there are certain uh, there are certain products that um, uh, need to know what's going on and um, what they do about it at this point. Um, it all depends on on the type of products. No. Yeah, I would agree. And, and, and what markets are people in, too? <clears throat> Meaning, um, if your party XYZ that makes something that might degrade into microplastics, but you're only on the eastern seaboard and not selling things in California is a different different consideration for you um, than it would be if you were only in California and, and, and might get hit on multiple fronts with either the consequences of where the state goes or um, in terms of your own, let's call it manufacturing processes or environmental compliance, um, let alone your products. Um, yeah, it could, it, it's a different equation. I know a lot of out-of-state California producers have their, whether it's you or whether it's other attorneys, have an in-state Prop 65 specialist, right? Yeah, I, I have um, calls. Uh, I have a meeting set on Monday yeah. about uh, an out-of-state company that says, what's this notice Notice to sue, 60-day yeah, right. notice to sue under Proposition 65 that I just received? Yeah. So it's tricky, but I, I think you're right that people can look at their own, whatever you want to call it, chain of products, manufacturing, um, waste streams, and do a self-analysis and say, hey, how big of an issue is this for, for, for them? Or we've got one client that makes plastic corrugated pipes. It's a different issue for them than it is somebody who's making, um, let's call it manufacturing metal things, that, that there is no plastic involved. Yeah. And that's a good point. It is, uh, it's important where you are geographically and if you have a connection with, with California. Because it, it, it'll be a matter of time um, before some um, intrepid Proposition 65 attorney tries a uh, failure to warn argument. Mm -hmm. You know, once, once, pub, once through the Public Records Act, um, water purveyors... Uh, plastic piping companies that that supply the water uh, can be identified as having you know detectable levels of microplastics in their products. Right. In the near term, um, you mentioned earlier, you know, what could we do about the microplastics issue because it is it is a concern. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you mentioned on a consumer level on uh you know a father mostly i call myself a grandfather now father <laughs> grandfather level you know trying to limit trying to limit uh the use of plastics around the house yeah what um, else yeah much to my wife's chagrin i threw out all our uh cookware a few years ago that was for pfos reasons not microplastics reasons but it turns out it, it applies um for me i think it comes down to yeah um being as aware as you can, nobody's perfect and we can't all be 100% organic. Um, some people can and I, I, I admire them. That'd be nice. Um, but it's um, whether it's certain restaurants you go to, whether it's um, the water bottle you use, that this one's not perfect, but it's metal at least. And I replaced it for my, replaced my daughters with those. Trying to avoid um, bottled water or things that are bagged certain ways. 
Um, I went to a groundwater conference recently and they had bottled water and I kind of was sad about that. Um, I just said, we got to, we got to do away with that, please. As a groundwater organization. Yeah. As a groundwater organization. Um, so, so yeah, it's about, first it's about knowledge and making the most informed decisions you can. Um, in this society, there's no way to avoid plastic, um, obviously, but can we kind of maybe each do a internal analysis of how we are buying things or what's around the house and, and try to improve a little bit. But then on a bigger macro scale, um, I just read before we talked, because I was just checking on what's new, um, we're at a point that I think there may be regulations passed on the filters that we're going to have on our um, washing machines or washing clothes to catch the microplastics. So for me, I'm like, oh my gosh, how old are, how old's our washing machine? And certainly I'm not going to go change my washing machine because I'm sure the regulation that comes out or the, the advisory will, will take some time to roll in. But if I'm going to replace it before that rolls out, can I get one of the new ones and just avoid the hassle later? But try to try to do something better for the environment. Um, that's something that we can all kind of, that's just an example. I'm not saying everybody needs to go do that. But for me, how it's factoring into our kind of day-to-day life, trying to avoid plastics to the degree possible. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, it's interesting you mentioned, uh, you know, the PFAS and what to do about that at, at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, years ago, I converted to cast iron cookware just Perfect. because, um, you know, I prefer it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm happy I made that decision. And I think it's important for people to consider the household decisions they made. And, you know, I, yeah, I have a lot of those metal water bottles, mm-hmm. which I prefer as well. So, right. and, you know, for me, my municipal clients, wastewater treatment clients, uh, you know, privately owned water treatment work clients, just talking to them about, we got to stay on top of, um, you know, the carb air emission requirements, mm-hmm. concerns. And from a political standpoint, you know, they have public meetings. And so right. they've got to be, they've got to be ready to tell, uh, you know, concerned private citizens uh, about, they're um, the fact that they're keeping track of microplastic uh, regulation and um, they're doing what they can to limit uh, the use of uh, plastics in their system. Right. And that they're uh, keeping up on current treatment and uh, treatment technologies, all types of technologies. And, you know, we are concerned members of the public and, and, and we hear you. Because they're going to be bombarded. They are bombarded with that now, but um, that's just going to increase over time. Right. And, you know, as a scientist, you, you've got to stay informed what you're doing. Yeah, I'm lucky that this is my business. So as a company, this is certainly something we're focused on. Um, if I didn't do what I did for water, I don't know how I'd know any of these things. Um, but but yeah, it's, it's hard because in our day-to-day lives, getting my children to and from school is a bigger priority than figuring out um, which particular water bottle we're going to use. But, but but that's where it takes little little bits and pieces when you can. Um, you can't change everything whole scale. But, but yeah, it comes back to taking a little bit of time and there are more and more resources available online. And as the science and technology advances, um, the information hopefully is mostly more and more accurate. Um, it's not a perfect world and people can post anything they want to on the internet. It doesn't make it true, 
but 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 if you go to the reputable sources, there's there's a lot of how-to guides on how to deplastify your life, for instance. Yeah, the internet is another is another discussion. <laughs> What's on the internet, yes. John? We are um, blessed to have you on this uh, this program. We learned uh, a lot, um, and um, as you said so artfully, there's more to come. Yeah, there's more to come. Thank you for this opportunity. I appreciate it and look forward to talking again about whether it's this or other topics. And thank you for doing this podcast. It's helpful. I know um, for your clients, I've listened to a few of them, but then also for people beyond your client base, I know. Well, thank you very much for that. I want to give you the last word and also to uh, give your contact information, which of course we'll, we'll put uh, on, um, on our, on our website. Last word on, on anything that uh, you're doing to watch out for? Yeah, I, I think um, in, in, in the, let's call it in my environmental world right now, things have been shook up a fair bit by the PFAS um, developments with the federal government coming out with a proposed MCL. See how long that takes to shake out. Um, microplastics is probably five or six years around the corner. Um, for some water purveyors, it's not five or six years around the corner. It's a year or two around the corner. Um, but again, kind of everybody only has so much bandwidth in their lives, and this is something to keep an eye on. Um, I don't know that there's going to be too much activity in the immediate next year, but definitely microplastics is something to be thinking about. Um, but 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 I'm lucky to do something I love, and we try to follow here at Rue Associates, try to follow the kind of next, next thing that's out there on the horizon. And um, for better or for us, live in California. I think mostly for better. Um, but that's where some of these things like PFAS or microplastics will keep a lot of us, whether it's environmental consultants or attorneys, busy for a little bit. But we got to all help our clients and help them make the most informed decisions they can. You're very skilled. You're very. You're certainly well respected, and you're very passionate about uh, what you do, which makes Thank you, you a, a fantastic, uh, certainly a fantastic expert witness. <laughs> well, thank you. John, um, we will post your contact information. Thank you. Um, thank you for, for being on. If you um, like this uh, program, please uh, subscribe. You can um, get it on Apple, Spotify. It's, uh, it's available on lots of sources. Please, uh, please like, please subscribe, uh, and please share your comments. If you um, like the program or have any comments, that you'd like to share T Montoya T M O N T O Y A at F E T law.com. Thank you very much and uh, have a good day. And John made a good point. Limit plastic usage whenever you can. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>